You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, I'm delighted again this morning to invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word, either in a Black Pew Bible, a Bible of your own, on your device, to our text for this morning, which is Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Uh, it is, uh, no, there's no Sunday where it's lost on me how happy I am to stand here with you before the Word of God. I hope that you are, at least at times, as happy as I am. What is so interesting about that to me, though, is that we so often in our church, because of our love for the Word of God, and because of the honesty of the Word of God, and because of the grasp that we have on our own lives and the world that we live in, that we could be so happy to open God's Word when so often we're reading difficult things. We're bringing to mind not just the wonderful aspects of life in this world. We're not just bringing to mind the many infinite blessings that Christ has given to us in the gospel, but we are so often pairing that with very hard realities. Hard realities that are reflected even in the songs that we sing as we we sing about suffering, we sing about storms, we sing about the challenges of life. And so it's amazing to me that we can with the power of the gospel, continually stand before the word of God and continually be made glad even in the face of suffering. We want as Christians who have been transformed by Christ, who suffered for us, to be the kind of people that know how to faithfully suffer. That we know how to receive suffering in this world from the hand of our God and to depend upon him in such a way that we can remain faithful. That's our focus for this morning, is is simply to answer this question, how can we be faithful in suffering? This morning, I want to share with you three truths that will help us, three keys for how we can be faithful in suffering that come directly from this text in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. We have here both hard and comforting truth. The hard truth that we know as Christians is this. We have been at times disappointed when we expected that knowing Christ, being united with him, coming to belong to him, would radically change our experience in the world. That he would somehow spare us from difficulty, spare us from tribulation and trouble and hardship and temptation. And the hard truth is that we find very quickly that that has not been his plan. But yet, paired with that is the enormous truth. It's the reason that we can continue to to thrive in gladness because the comforting truth is that he will walk with us through the tribulation, through the trouble. That rather than having these circumstances and difficulties and hardships and heartaches removed from us, that we have been given something far better. We have been given a glad savior who is fully suited and able to care for us and to walk with us. And that's our hope this morning. And so as we consider how we can be faithful in suffering, what we're essentially doing is taking these keys and burying them in our hearts that they might motivate us and enable us to draw close to him so that we can be faithful, so that we can even be glad in the midst of suffering. 
That's a wonderful thought, and I pray, I pray with all of my heart that that will become more and more true for us as a church, even in these days where we are, we are well acquainted with difficulty, perhaps unlike many other times in our lives. Well, this morning as we come to Revelation chapter 2, verse 8, we find that the text enters into another city. You know that this is the part of Revelation where a number of cities are being addressed by God, by Christ, and with each one, they are addressed according to the need of the moment. Last week, we saw what was said to the angel or to the pastor leader of the church at Ephesus. Now we turn our attention to another city, and it's a city called Smyrna. What's so interesting about this city is that this city is not simply a city that shows up in this letter, but it even sort of serves as a symbol or as a picture of what God intended to do among these people. You see, Smyrna, 700 years prior to the writing of Revelation, had been destroyed and it was laid waste for 300 years. But then it somehow resurrected And it was resurrected and rebuilt into a glorious place that even rivaled places like Ephesus, these great global cities that were were shining examples of prosperity and strength. Even today, Smyrna is modern-day Izmir, Turkey, a global city, beautiful in many ways. And this city here seems to even serve as a kind of picture for us of the hope that we have in Christ. Because as we look at what what God says to the angel of the church of Smyrna, he comes to deliver this comforting truth that even in the midst of suffering, he is faithful to them. And because he is faithful to them, they can be faithful in suffering. So let's begin with verse 8. I want to start, before we look at the three keys, to notice what is the, the ultimate truth of all, and that is the one who is speaking to them. You see, all of the truths of Scripture do not stand on their own. You can't simply take them, pull them out of the Bible, and apply them to life just in any which way you would like. You can't, if you don't know Christ in particular, take things from the Bible and just plug and play them in your life, and suddenly, as an unbeliever, your life would be different because the Bible isn't full of business principles. It's not full of just basic self-help applications. What's it full of? It's full of a person. It's this person that makes us able to take the truths of Scripture and enjoy them and use them and benefit from them. And therefore, we can never divorce them from the person of Scripture, but rather find them in the midst of him. And that's exactly what happens over and over again in this section of the book of Revelation. If you look forward, and you're welcome to do that now, you glance forward at the other cities, you'll notice the same pattern, that when he addresses them, he starts not by giving them instruction, but by giving them declaration of who he is. This is what he said to the church at Ephesus, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. He begins at the proper starting point for all of us, and that starting point is always with the person and character and work, not of ourselves, but of our God. Same thing happens here as he addresses the church at Smyrna. Notice in verse 8, he says, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this. He begins right here with this exhortation to them by filling them with hope, filling them with with potential gladness and energy and life 
because of the one who is speaking to them, he declares first himself. And then we're able to embrace and understand and apply with God's help these three keys so that you and I, even in this moment, can prepare our hearts with his help to suffer faithfully in whatever way he has called. So let's look at these three keys, beginning with the first. The first key, if you want to be a person, a Christian, who can suffer faithfully, is you must, like these believers, rest in God's knowing. Listen to what he says in verse 9. He says, I, remember the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, I know. I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. There is a world of comfort. There is a world of divine gladness and stability and joy and strength in those very first two words of verse 9. I know. This is so often the experience that I have in my Christian life is that when I'm facing serious trouble, suffering, difficulty, that's one of the truths that's, that's quickest to fly away from me. Suddenly I start to wonder if God knows where I am. Do you really paying attention? Do you really know what's going on? Maybe not. Did God really say? Does God really know? And here he tells them quite clearly in just these two words, oh yes, I know. You see, I found more and more as I have walked along in this Christian life with you, us together, I have found that the gospel is not merely a serving of good news, but it is a channel of good news. It's not as though the good news of the gospel is simply all contained in one bottle called gospel, and you, you drink it out, and then it's within you, and it's gone, but rather that the gospel is not like the bottle. The gospel is like the natural spring that's continually flowing. In fact, what it is, is it's a vehicle of good news that has an, an infinite amount of good news inside of it. All different kinds of good news. And as you look through the scriptures and look intently for them, you find them. You find all of these examples of good news. You find all of these different ways that you can say with the authors of scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit who delivers the good news, I have good news. I have good news on Monday. I have good news on Tuesday and Wednesday. I have good news on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And every moment in between, there is good news. Because the good news of Jesus Christ, who lived, died, and rose again for us, and has infinite grace showered upon us, bringing us into a covenant of grace by which he will never let us go, no matter what we do, continues to overflow continues to overflow with good news. This is one of the places where I circle and write good news. And it's around those two words, I know. There is good news in knowing that God knows. In fact, I've often preached that to myself. I've, I've tried to counsel that to other brothers and sisters as we're walking together, is that we need to preach the good news to ourselves that God knows. Notice what he says about his knowledge of their situation. He says, I know your tribulation. 
I know your poverty. Of course, he also, you see it in parentheses probably in your version of the Bible. He makes sure to insert that additional knowledge that he has, the encouraging influx of of additional grace and assurance because he says, but you are rich. He's pointing out to them that though they, they feel this enormous earthly poverty and suffering and weakness, he says to them, but in the unseen where it really matters, where I am, you are rich. You have everything that you need, and yet he still says with enormous compassion and understanding, I know. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. I even know your slander, which was so stinging to these believers because it was slander coming from the very people of God, the Jews, those who claimed to be Jews, and yet he says, but they're really not. They really don't belong to me because they're slandering you, but rather they belong, really difficult thing to hear, they belong to Satan. He puts it so clearly. They are a synagogue, a temple, a church of Satan. And yet he tells them that he knows. Friends, I believe that for our lives in the midst of suffering, there is enormous power in knowing Not only that God knows where we are, not only that he knows what's happening and he can call out the circumstances, but also knowing why and how he knows. That's what takes us back to verse 8, because if you want to know how and why he knows these things, you have to look into him. And we have this wonderful opportunity again in verse 8. How does he know? He knows because he is the first and the last. He is the Alpha and the Omega. There's incredible hope in knowing that he has everything bookended by his sovereignty. He's containing everything in a a circle of sovereignty, controlling all of the things in the world. And therefore, when you look to him, you're not looking to someone who is merely inside the circle at the mercy of difficulty and suffering, but one who actually stands over and above it and controlling it, working it, working it for his perfect ends. And in fact, when you think about the slander that they're hearing over and over again by these who claim to be Jews and are really not, but a synagogue of Satan, we are reminded that he also, he also will have the last word because he is the first and the last. He is the the divine king who is ruling over all, high and exalted, overseeing everything in life. But not only that, because what else does he say? He's not just high and exalted. He's not just way out there. He's not some kind of deism is the word we use, a distant God who really doesn't care about what's going on or control it. But instead, he also is he who was dead and has come to life. He's the one who being perfect God is also perfect man who has gone through suffering in this life with us. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. He has even gone to the cross, the very worst kind of death on our behalf, suffered greatly his entire earthly life and ministry. And therefore, he is the one who understands. That's why, that's how he knows And that, again, is another reminder of where their redemption lay. Our redemption with theirs springs from the death and resurrection 
of another. These words I know speak a word of comfort to those who have ears to hear them. Because when you learn that this kind of God knows where you are, he knows the kind of suffering that you go through. And he is with you, walking with you, caring for you, comforting you, all with his sovereign hands. It brings you comfort and hope. It adds an important truth to some of the basic things we believe. Think about those basics of of Christian doctrine that we sold so dear, our theology, our study of God, and knowing who he is and what life is like and what he says about us. We know perhaps that hardest of realities that the Bible clearly tells us that we we are sinful. Every part of us is sinful. We're not as bad as we could be, but everything about us is tainted with sin. We also believe with with much joy that because of our sin, we, we need a salvation that we cannot merit, one that's given to us by grace, and that's what we have. We are saved by grace alone. We are given a a particular kind of salvation because God has, has come to us and called us out and called us to Himself. We have even been drawn to him when we had no power of our own, drawn to him in such a way that no one was going to stop us. He drew us to himself by his grace. And he so loves us and he so cares for us that we will persevere to the very end, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. Because he will persevere and we are with him, we will persevere to the very end And yet, the words I know, they add another truth, one that is so very important. And it's this, that by his sovereignty, by his loving control, we are living right now in the best of all possible worlds. God has left nothing to chance that he would accomplish all of his incredible purposes to the, to the magnificence of his glory, to the extreme maximum of our gladness and good. And therefore, we can know that no matter what we're going through, tribulation or poverty or slander, or even as we'll see in a moment, death, that we are living in the best of all possible worlds. If the world was any different right now, Think about it in any which way you would like, medically, politically, socially, economically. If the world was any different right now, it would not suit God's ultimate purposes to bring about his glory in the world. Now, if you have ears to hear that, that is a world of comfort because you know that he knows. We see this throughout scripture We see this kind of of incredible control. It is a mystery to us. It's hard to get our hearts around, but we hear it over and over again. We need to hear it more over and over again. For instance, in 1 Peter chapter 1, listen to this. Key words that you zoom in on and capture the, the richness of I know. In this, you greatly rejoice. Even though now for a little while, do you know what the next two words are? If necessary, You have been distressed by various trials, if necessary, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, if necessary. Those are the same kinds of words as I know. 
They're the words of God's sovereign control of the way that he is orchestrating the world to maximize his purposes. Or look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where we read this, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of our affliction, which occurred in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our own strength. Do you know what the next two words are? So that... Same kinds of words as if necessary and I know so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. There they are again. So that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. The Lord himself inhabits those two words so that. They speak to his intentionality, his control, and they speak to our comfort. It's these kind of rich and deep and challenging truths that I have a hard time getting my heart around sometimes that I need the most because they are the truths that actually answer these hardest questions of suffering in the world. These are the truths that have sustained those who have gone before us, those that we exalt as examples of faithfulness in suffering. One that's particularly apt for this text is is someone who lived 60 years after Revelation. His name was Polycarp, and he was the bishop of Smyrna, a pastor in Smyrna who was mentored by the Apostle John. And he faced his own kind of suffering here in this same place in which he was called to recant what he believed or else face the punishment of the government, the proconsul at that time. And when he was faced with this severe penalty, do you know what he said? 86 years I have served him, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? The only way that anyone in that situation of suffering can say something like that is if he or she knows God knows. He knows. Therefore, for us who want to be faithful in suffering now in whatever ways God calls, big or small, we must do this thing. We must preach to ourselves the good news, in particular, that God knows. I want to encourage you to do that as you face trials and troubles and tribulations and temptations in the coming weeks, whatever may come. Preach to yourself the good news that God knows. He knows your tribulation. He knows where you are because we know God's knowing we therefore can move on to the second key, and that is this. Because of that, we fear not God's testing. See, it's continuing to build on itself. It's, it's filling us with strength for these difficult moments. We fear not God's testing. Turn to verse 10. Here we have laid out for us a potentially frightening revelation of suffering. Listen to this. Listen to the the candor and the honesty of what is said to them next about the, the tribulation that he knows about. He says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Here is this this gracious life-giving command. Do not fear. I know, I know, and that's enough. 
So do not fear what you're about to suffer, but then something really counterintuitive happens. This is never the way that I would just naturally in my own wisdom, which isn't very wise, deal with people who are facing suffering. He follows this do not fear with an explicit description of the suffering they are about to encounter. He even says, Behold, remember those words, we behold Christ. It means set your hope and your vision on him. Set your mind on him. Hear this and embrace it. He says, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. That word 10 days is usually a way to talk about a period of time. So for a period of time, you're going to suffer. And this suffering for some of you is going to be being thrown into prison. And if that's not frightening enough, it's the thought that you're going to be thrown into prison by the devil. This kind of suffering has happened throughout church history, even into recent days. In the 2000s, it's estimated that 1.6 million Christians were martyred around the world. This is not something foreign to us in these modern civilized times. The same thing they were going through then Others are going through now. But I want you to see this. What is the way that we prove the power of God's knowing? That we prove the power of God's faithfulness? That we prove the power of his loving care in knowing that he is in control? We know it because he explicitly describes the suffering and calls them to fear not. Many of us have had procedures at the doctor, maybe a surgery. It's hard not to be afraid already when you're going to undergo some kind of suffering or, or go under the knife with your surgeon. What's made that even harder in recent decades is the invention of something called Google. You can Google or YouTube that very surgery and you can watch it being done and that's the worst thing you possibly could do. Why? Because if you want to not be afraid, don't fill your mind with pictures of what you're about to go through. You cannot handle it. But that's not the way that God deals with them. What does he do for them? He himself, in explicit detail, draws up YouTube. He plays for them in incredible color and brilliance the suffering that they are going to face. And yet he has the audacity to say to them, do not fear. It says something about the power of trusting God's wisdom in suffering. It says something about his excellence, about his superiority. That if you know him and you are in tune with his knowing and his love and his grace and his sovereignty in your life, even if you know the details of your suffering, you can rest in him without fear because he is better than your suffering. Notice the way that he talks about their suffering. It again infuses them with a kind of hope in knowing that he knows and knowing that he's in control, even when they have the details, because he says, you will be tested. 
Well, throughout Scripture and God's economy, testing is not this way that he gives you a test to see if you pass it. He's not quite sure what you know, and so he wants you to give an account, and then he, he gives you a grade when he grades your exam. That's not what happens in testing. But rather, his testing, the testing of this suffering, even in this text, does two things. It puts on display for the world his supremacy. It gives an opportunity for his people who belong to him to not be afraid in the midst of this because of who they belong to, much like Polycarp. It also gives them an opportunity to have their faith, meager as it may be, refined. And it is refined to the glory of their God and to the good of their souls and to the evangelism of the world. That is what testing is all about. He even tells them that you will have tribulation for 10 days. It's a set period of time. He's saying, I I know the amount of time. I control the amount of time. I know and control how long the test will last. And therefore, you don't need to be afraid. I am with you. In fact, I myself am your surgeon. I am with you and I will care for you. When Polycarp said that about his 86 years that he served him and he would not blaspheme the king who never did him any wrong, the proconsul immediately responded, I have wild beasts. I shall throw you to them if you do not change your mind. Polycarp, again, overwhelmed with the empowering grace of God in this moment of suffering, responded, call them. For repentance from the better to the worse is not permitted us, but it is noble to change from what is evil to what is righteous. Call them. Have you ever heard such fearlessness? I have wild beasts. I'm going to throw you to these lions. Then call them already because he trusts in the God who is with him. So how do you not fear testing? with Polycarp, with these believers, with John and others who join us in the redemptive history of God's plan for the world. You do this by fixing your hope on God's love in the gospel. You fix your hope on everything that the good news of Jesus Christ and the rest of his word tells you about him. That he knows that he is in control and that he is working all things for your good. It is about knowing his incredible love in Christ and having that so often refreshed upon us, just crashing over us like waves so that our experience is even the experience that we read about in places like 1 John. In 1 John 4, this may be familiar to you, it says, there is no fear in love. You ask yourself, what's the antidote to fear? Well, my natural response would be, what's the antonym of fear? Bravery. So the antidote to fear must be bravery. Therefore, we tell someone who's afraid, be brave. Maybe the antidote to fear is to be, to be full of faith. Trust God. Of course, it is. But the ultimate that we read here, even in 1 John 4, and we see displayed for us in the book of Revelation, is that the antidote to fear is not those things. The antidote to fear is love. Covenant divine love. If you don't want to be afraid in the midst of suffering, what should you fix your heart on? Your own bravery. Nope. 
your own faithfulness. Nope. But instead you fix your heart on the perfect love that casts out your fear. Because as John says, fear involves punishment. That's what you're afraid of. You're afraid of the moment that you're going to be let down. You're going to be turned over to suffering and you're going to be lost somewhere in the the abyss of heartache. But rather, when you know perfect love, you are perfected because you know that he loved you first and he loved you in such a way that he's promised never to let you go. This is the key to fearing not God's testing. This is the key to faithfully suffering. And we pray, God, please give us more of that. We see looking in the mirror, we have such a long way to go and we pray for his help. Finally, here's the last key that we see in this text for those who want to suffer faithfully. And it is that in God's fear-crushing love, we are able then to press forward to God's crowning. This is a beautiful text, so many few verses, and yet it carries us through light years of truth and hope all the way to the end of this moment where he is describing to them what their ultimate destiny would be. This scene has already become more concerning because you've heard about the suffering. You've heard about it in detail. You've heard about these 10 days. 10 days until what? Well, for some of them, the very next words speak the starkest reality. He says, be faithful until death. He's explaining them that for some of them, their suffering will not be alleviated by freedom. Their suffering will not be alleviated by a rescue mission, but rather that their suffering will be alleviated by death. And that therefore, knowing God's knowledge of their situation and fearing not his testing, but trusting him in every way that they can, that they would press forward even unto death. What a thought. And he would give them the crown of life. The reality of death, which has been impressed upon me more lately, is an arresting reality. The finality of death. You, you feel the fragility of your life that with, with one seemingly wrong move, step off a curb or, or have some other kind of, of, of mistake or disease or whatever, and your life could be gone. It captures our attention. No one can escape that reality. It is the final frontier. But for those who know Christ, we are sustained. And we are sustained by promises Promises that we read here and many others. Notice the two promises he gives. He says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. The one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. There's two promises there. The two promises that he intends to uphold them in the midst of their suffering. Number one is that by remaining faithful to him, by remaining close to him, that he would give them the crown of life, a symbol of his care and his, their righteousness in him. The Bible talks about a number of different crowns to illustrate this. We read about some like the crown of life, the crown of righteousness, the crown of glory, the crown of rejoicing. It's a way of putting on display the glory 
of faithfulness to God even to the very end. But then even beyond that, they're promised that the one who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. He shows them that that even though I've given you this explicit description of the suffering that you're going to go through, there is something worse. And what is worse is the second death. It's the death that those will experience who don't know Christ that pass through this life as enemies of his and they go into eternity as his enemies and they stand before him on the day of judgment without their great attorney who is Christ to defend them on his own merit and therefore on their merit and their merit alone they earn the wages of their sin and that is the second death in a place called hell, a place of of eternal suffering and torment, a place in the very presence of God, knowing only his wrath. And therefore, he says, those who overcome by faithfulness to me will not even be hurt by the second death. That's a promise that will sustain you in the midst of suffering. When Polycarp refuted again the proconsul, the proconsul said, okay, then I shall have you consumed with fire if you despise the wild beasts, unless you change your mind. Polycarp responded, the fire you threaten burns but an hour and is quenched after a little. For you do not know the first of the coming judgment and everlasting punishment that is laid up for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Come do what you will. And that's the way Polycarp's life and ministry to the Lord ended in this life. He was burned at the stake and just to make sure he was then stabbed to death as a martyr for his king who went to his death this way. He pressed on. He is an example to us, as are these in this text. And he pressed on because he knew who led the charge. We can press on in the midst of our suffering if we know who leads the charge. It's like receiving passage on a train to the coast. What must you do to finally reach the end? That's the question. How are you to be faithful? How are you to overcome to the very end? That seems burdensome. That's too much for me. I can't do that. But you must know who you're depending on. You're not depending on the passenger. You're depending on the train. You're depending on the conductor. What does it mean to be faithful to the very end? What does it mean to overcome? It means to stay close to Christ. It means to rely upon his grace and his orchestration of all the things in your life, trusting in him. Because he is the one who runs the show. He himself is the train. And he is its faithful conductor. You're reading here about conditions with a promise. If you're faithful, you'll get the crown. If you overcome, then you won't be hurt by the second death. But again, I see conditions that I cannot keep. So what am I to do? I am to look to Christ who is full of grace. And for those who know him, he is the condition keeper. And he is the promise granter. 
Therefore, our assurance of future blessing is not in our doing. Our assurance of future blessing is in our continual hearing, hearing what he has done for us. This test that we are reading about directs our attention to the ultimate hope. That's where he's taking them. Their ultimate hope is where the journey is going, ultimately to his kingdom forevermore, where there will be no sin, there will be no more suffering, there will be no more tests. And therefore, they're able to endure, they're able to suffer with us. We want to suffer with them faithfully. So in order for us to put that last key into practice, what must we do? Do better? Do more? Get it right? No. Clear your ears. Listen. Listen to the voice of the one who speaks eternal grace into your soul, especially in times of suffering. We must practice hearing now so that we will be in tune to hear later. That's why we are trying, though imperfectly, together in every facet of our church to try to keep the gospel central, to keep hearing over and over and over again, to keep our ears in tune. Because we have here a reminder of the real trouble of this life, of what this world really is like, especially for Christians, because we do not belong here. But we're given here again the bright and cheerful hope that we have in the midst of this world and we have it because of the gospel. So we want to keep hearing the gospel and perhaps you're here this morning or you're on the live stream and you're hearing the gospel somewhat for the first time or you're beginning to entertain what it means to follow Christ. We implore you to come to Christ. That you would repent of your sin and place your trust in him. There'll be pastors at the back of of our sanctuary as we sing in a moment to talk more about that. We're always happy to get together during the week Talk about what it means to follow Christ and even to suffer faithfully with him. But we need his help. And so we pray this morning that God will give us his help as I lead us in prayer and as you stand now and we prepare our hearts to sing yet again. Our Father in heaven, we, we reel when we hear difficult truth. You so often close our mouths with the truth that you've given us in your word. You give us an honest, upfront view of the difficulty that we face. And yet even what can become of us in this difficult fallen world. And yet you have given us enormous truth and hope because of Christ. It's that truth that we pray you would drive within our hearts, that you would shine the light of the gospel even more brightly into our souls so that we would trust you, so that we could be faithful in suffering, no matter what that suffering may be, that we would be faithful to one another in suffering and that we'd be faithful to you. God, we pray as we sing this morning that you'd be pleased by the attitude of our hearts, by our affection for you, and we pray that you would grow it even now as we join our voices together in unison, crying out to you, the God who loves us and keeps us by his grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.